Well, good morning. I am thankful to be here. Praise God for Sundays, huh? Sundays are good. The Lord's Day, this is the day that the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, what a blessed place to be when remembering the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. I'm glad to be here with you all. We are starting a new series today. We're not starting a series in a New Testament book. We're not starting a series in an Old Testament book or on a particular doctrine or teaching, but we are starting a series on the life of David. And there is a lot to cover in the life of David. We have a lot of scripture to cover today. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump into God's word. God, we do thank you for your word, that your word is living and active. It's stronger than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. And we have the blessed privilege to hold it in our hands. We have the, the blessing of being able to come here and to, to study your word together, to do so in, in freedom, to do so uh, rejoicing together that we don't have to uh, sneak here. We don't have to come in two at a time. We don't have to uh, come in by dark or, or underground. God, we have so much blessing and, and privilege in this country, and we pray that we would uh, take advantage of it. We wouldn't take it for granted. God, we thank you for your word, that it is truth, that you have given it to us and preserved it for us, and we pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would be magnified in our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would be in awe of who you are. God, help us to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, we are jumping into the life of David today, and uh, as we meet David, we do so right smack dab in the middle of Israel's history. David comes along some 1,000 years before Christ, and there's a lot that has taken place before David even uh, comes to the throne, before David is even mentioned whatsoever in Scripture. And so we are going to spend a lot of time over the next 15 weeks looking at David and who David is. We're going to be really zoomed in looking at the, the person and the character of David. However, I don't want us to get so zoomed into David that we just get lost in David, all these stories about who David is, because it's not about David. It's about God, right? We want to uh, stay zoomed out enough to realize and, and not to lose sight of the fact that uh, David is just a man, and we want to focus particularly on David's God rather than on David, even as we're looking at the life of David. And so in an effort to zoom out a little bit and to see what God is doing, not just in and through the life of David, I want to go back and see what God has done thus far through the, the life of Israel, his people, and how he's brought this people to himself. Uh, so rather than just jumping straight into David, let's turn to Genesis 12. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we'll spend a little bit of time, again, kind of building a, a historical background, uh, realizing that David does enter Israel's story at a, a pivotal point, uh, not just uh, one of crucial importance, but pivotal in the sense that they are, there's a, a shift that is taking place. Um, there's a, a, a sliding, so to speak, that happens when David comes onto the scene in Israel's story. So again, we're going to start off Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, say, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see right here from the beginning, before Israel is even a nation, when God is going to Abram and and calling him out to a place that he has for not only Abram, but for his family, for um, not even just for his family, he says that all nations will be blessed through Abram. God is the one who is at work. He is the one who is establishing this nation that Abram is going to uh, birth. He's the one who is going to bless him and make his name great. Even from the very get-go, we see that it is all about God. And we continue to see that as we just think through the progression of Scripture. Abram uh, becomes Abraham, and Isaac, the, the son of blessing, is given to him in a miraculous way. Uh, Isaac uh, has Jacob, who becomes Israel, right? His name is changed to Israel. He has a, the 12 sons of Israel. All the while, God is working behind the scenes. God is the one who is orchestrating the the history of his people. And then we fast forward some 400 years in history. And let's jump forward to the book of Exodus. Again, 400 years have passed since even Abram's grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. And we read in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is following Jacob's son, Joseph, it says, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. You might think that's a lot for one man, but that's minimal in comparison to the nation of Israel, right? So 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became increasingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And of course, if you're familiar with this story, you know that this king, this pharaoh, he took and he enslaved all of the Israelites. He was fearful that they would rise up and he put them in captivity and enslavement underneath him to keep them under control. Well, God wasn't going to put up with that. Again, this is his chosen people. He had made a, a covenant promise to them and he brings them up out of slavery through Moses, right? The, the great leader, the great prophet of Israel, Moses. And Moses uh, is successful as God is carrying him along, as he is leading the people, and Israel fails, don't they? They turn away from God, they build for themselves this golden calf, and they refuse to go in and to take possession of the land that God has given them, and so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Moses passes the baton off to Joshua. And Joshua becomes the leader on earth of God's people as he is directing them and guiding them as he is going before God in the tent of meeting. And he is speaking with God and then taking that message to the people. He is acting as the the mediator for God's people, Israel, telling them and declaring for them what God has for them and how they are to live and and operate, what it is that they are to do. Well, Joshua is a man. He's a human. He only lasts around for so long. And so he passes from the scene. 
And the people begin to look around wondering, okay, well, who's going to lead us now? What are we going to do as a people? And we are introduced to the judges. And the judges are very interesting in that they uh, bring out and put on display the unfaithfulness of Israel. And we see over and over again that God will give his people, the Israelites, a judge to lead them, to bring them up out of captivity, to rescue them from uh, some other nation who has their thumb pushed down on Israel. And then Israel will come back and they will follow God for a season and then they will fall away and they will turn after other gods. And we just see this cyclical pattern within the book of Judges. Judges is a, a cycle of God rescuing his people and the people following away and uh, turning and doing what is right in their own eyes, turning away from God and just investing in their own selves, following after their own heart. Well, our little survey through history now brings us to the book of 1 Samuel. So if you're not in 1 Samuel already, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we'll take a look at how God leads his people after the, the judges, how he begins to lead them even uh, exiting this period of the judges. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, let's go ahead and start reading in verse 12. And we're reading here about Eli, who was a priest for the people. God was, had established Eli as the one that he would speak to the people through, that he would give spiritual direction from. And here we read not only about Eli, but about Eli's sons. So 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priest with the people. With any man was offering, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the, the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh and all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, and the men despised the offering of the Lord. So we see great wickedness here, not only by the sons of Eli, but by Eli for allowing this to go on, that they are despising the sacrifice of the Lord. They're manipulating and controlling the people in a way that turns them away from God and what God has commanded them to do. They are uh, being extremely wicked. In fact, as that passage that I started off reading said, these were worthless men. These were the ones who were actively leading God's people, Israel. Well, in that same chapter, just down in verse 26, we see quite a contrast from Hophni and Phinehas, uh, Eli's sons, to Samuel. In verse 26 of chapter 2, it says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Samuel is uh, presented in uh, a glowing light here. Samuel is a holy man, whereas Hophni and Phinehas are unholy men. And we're going to see how God speaks to Samuel to 
offer judgment for the way that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are uh, leading God's people. So over in chapter 3, verse 11, we see the judgment of God come upon Eli through the prophet Samuel. So chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Those are pretty harsh words. Again, God is bringing this judgment upon the, the man and the, his sons under him who were, uh, they were tasked with the, the job of leading his people. And they were doing a terrible job. They were doing a, a wicked and evil job. And so God turns to Samuel and Samuel now becomes the, the mouthpiece of God as God seeks to bring this judgment upon Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, it says, Thus Samuel grew again, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan over to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And so Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they were all killed on the same day, a very terrible day in Israel's history, a day when not only were these leaders of Israel killed, but the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And now Samuel is being lifted up. Samuel is the one who is leading God's people. Uh, he is the one that God is leading his people through, rather. And we see in chapter 7, not only is Samuel the one who is leading them, but his people, the Israelites, they are listening to Samuel. They look at Samuel as their leader. In 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. So they're following after Samuel. They're listening to Samuel. They are submitting to Samuel, this uh, unique man, this incredible man who functions not only as a, a prophet, but he functions in the role of a priest as well. And he functions as uh, the last of all of Israel's judges. We're told in Acts 13 that he was the, the final judge of Israel. And so Samuel also, like David, is pivotal in this whole story of how God is operating through his nation, how God is directing his nation uh, amongst all the other nations. Well, Samuel, though he was a holy man, uh, like Eli, he didn't have a, a, a holy history, so to speak, a holy progeny. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read about his sons. 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. 
His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel was a a bright light, right? He did a good job, much better than Eli and much better than Hophni and Phinehas. However, his sons continued to lead Israel in a despicable way that the Lord didn't, uh, he didn't smile upon. He didn't show favor upon that. And what we see just in this brief history of looking at Israel is that Israel is faithfully unfaithful, aren't they? Like repeatedly, they're just unfaithful. If there's anything you can count on Israel for, it's the fact that they're going to be unfaithful, that God is going to prove himself faithful and they're going to turn away. And they're not unique in that. I mean, we all do the same thing, right? God is a faithful God. God is a just and a forgiving God. And we, we mess it up, don't we? Uh, we are, like Israel, faithful in our unfaithfulness. We are consistently unfaithful. Well, let's continue reading in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as we see a, a shift in the mindset of the people. We see a shift in the way that Israel is to be led going forward. In 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us, and get this, like all the nations. They wanted to be like everybody else. Verse 6, Then the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And so God says the same thing. Don't be surprised. This is just wicked, unfaithful Israel, right? This is what they do. They're always unfaithful toward me. They're always chasing after other gods. This is uh, their MO. They're just being consistent in their pattern of their unfaithfulness. And now they're wanting to be like everybody else around them. They're wanting to fit in and they're wanting a king on earth, essentially rejecting God as their king. God who has been leading them under this theocracy as he has been directing certain men as these, these men were acting as mediators before the people and returning to God and getting direction and instruction from God directly. Well, let's look at the, the warning that Samuel offers to these people through, uh, that God offers these people through the mouth of Samuel. It says in verse 10, that Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for performers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his servants. 
to his officers. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and the best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So that doesn't sound fun at all, does it? And God warned them up front. This is what a king's going to do. He's going to look out for number one. He's going to be all about himself. And you guys, rather than benefiting from this, you guys are going to be the ones who are going to be his subjects. You guys are going to be oppressed in this whole situation. God warned them up front. And he even told them at the end, this isn't going to be, I'm not going to come and answer you in, in that day. Not that God wouldn't answer them eventually, but he says, the Lord will not answer you in that day. Full disclosure, right? God is letting them know up front, I don't think you guys want a king. You guys look around you and you are thinking, okay, grass is greener over there. God tells them that's not the case whatsoever. He tries to warn them. In verses 19 and 20, wrap up and say that nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. Samuel, again, who was their prophet and their priest, who was their judge, and they refused to listen to him even though he was speaking on behalf of God. It says, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. That was utter foolishness. And of course, God's word came to pass, right? Exactly what God warned them against came to happen. And we are quick to to judge Paul, not Paul, Saul for this um, and to say, okay, well, Saul led his people astray and he took advantage of them and he did all these negative things that God warned that he would do. However, Saul and his poor leadership was merely a reflection of Israel and their wayward ways. I know we're doing a lot of reading, but this is the word of God. It's good. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to read to us verses 12 through 15. It says... When, make sure I got the right reference, yep. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you and said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. That's important. They rejected God as their king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Are you getting this? This is a conditional promise. You guys follow God and your king will follow God and things will go well for you. However, verse 15, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So again, Saul in his... Uh, disobedience and his poor leadership, he was merely a reflection of Israel and they're turning their back against God and they're uh, being disobedient in their ways. So let's now take a, a step back and look at this man that these people are asking for. They're wanting a king to lead them and God chooses for them a king. He chooses this man, Saul. And Saul, he starts off his his reign over the Israelites pretty well, actually. 
um, back in chapter 9, it describes Saul as being a choice and a handsome man, more handsome than any of the other men. In fact, he was head and shoulders over all the other men. So he was a, a good-looking king, right? He had that going for him. Uh, we're told that he had early success in his kingship, that he had a lot of military success to begin with. And in fact, under Saul's leadership, uh, God brought Israel to a point where they were sovereign. They had national sovereignty from any of the other nations. They didn't have anybody else who was over them, who was seeking to influence or empower them, to enslave them. They had national sovereignty in Israel through and under Saul's leadership. However, this was, of course, short-lived, right? Because Israel does what everybody else does. Sinners are going to sin, right? Uh, pagans are going to pay. They're, they're sinners, right? That's what we do. So just summarizing to catch us up to where we're at, in chapter 13, you might remember this story. Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice before going into battle, and Saul grows impatient. Saul uh, decides that he's going to offer this burnt offering. He's going to offer this peace offering himself in direct uh, disobedience to what God has told him. He's going to do this against the decrees of God. And this, of course, is not within God's design. God has not called him to do this. He has disobeyed God, and he gets called out for it. Chapter 14, Saul makes a number of poor decisions that lead to some military failure. I talked about how in the past he's had some military success. Now he's becoming foolish in the way that he's leading and directing his army. And we see some military failures. Within chapter 14, we also see that he makes a, a foolish oath that really comes to the point where he's ready and willing to kill his own son, Jonathan, who is ultimately spared by the grace of God. But Saul is making some poor choices leading up to where we're at in chapter 15. And in the beginning of chapter 15, we see that God commands Saul to go in and to completely destroy the Amalekites. And he once again disobeys a direct order from God. God is very clear. You need to go in. You need to destroy every man, woman, child. You need to take the king and, and kill the king. You don't take any spoil with you. And Saul, thinking that he knows better, disobeys the Lord. And just by the way, God is completely just in everything that he does, right? He doesn't need me to stand up here and to offer a defense for him and to say that he is justified in commanding an entire nation to be destroyed. A lot of people will take issue with that. Um, but if, for whatever reason, you want to do a little bit more background study on that, you can look at Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25, and that will give some backstory about the Amalekites and how they really did the Israelites dirty. And they came up behind them and uh, picked off all the, the weak that were among them and, and killed and slaughtered them. And in that moment, again, back in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, God commands that they will be destroyed, that he's going to, to make things right. And that once Israel knows uh, security and safety, and once they have this um, national sovereignty, that he will come and he will completely wipe out the Amalekites. And that's what he's seeking to do here. And Saul is disobedient in that charge that God has given to him. Well, let's look as we pick up that story of Saul's disobedience to this direct command of God in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. 
says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. You get that? Saul set up a monument for himself. After going out and disobeying God, he thought, what a great guy I am. Everybody ought to honor me. I need a statue in my name, so I'm going to set one up for myself. That's just sick. It says, then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. Just acting like everything's all gravy, right? Everything's okay. Nothing to see here. Blessed are you, Samuel. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Now get this, I love this. In verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? He's calling them out. He's saying, don't tell me that you were obedient to God when I'm hearing these sheep that are bleeding. I'm hearing these sound of the spoils that you took from God. God told you specifically, he told you directly not to take any spoils. Why are you pretending to be obedient when you're being disobedient? Uh, one of the sayings that has become common in our household is that delayed obedience is disobedience. If we ask you to do something, we come in and we see that it hasn't been done. Uh, it's not a, an adequate response to say, oh, well, I was, I was going to get to it. I was about to, but that, that's not okay. Delayed obedience is disobedience, right? And likewise, partial obedience is disobedience. That's not okay for Saul to only obey part of the command and disobey the other part. And then to stand here and say, oh yeah, I, I obeyed the, the command that God had given me. Samuel's not going to put up with that. Uh, incomplete obedience is complete obedience as far as God is concerned. And we see that in the response that God has for Saul. Uh, jump down a few verses. In verse 19, it says... Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal." Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. We've got a lot going on here, don't we? We see right off the bat, not only is Saul misreading this whole situation, thinking and, and convincing himself, lying to himself really, that he obeyed God, but then when he gets called out, he blame shifts. He turns and he says, well, the Israelites, they did this, right? I went out and I obeyed and I destroyed everybody, but the Israelites, they just wanted to keep some spoil for themselves. That's not how things work, right? When you have a king over a nation, the king makes the decree, the king gives a and the people will go out and they'll listen to what the king tells them to do. 
And in that day, it was very common when one nation went and they destroyed another, they took over the other nation for them to bring the king back kind of as a trophy. And they would cut off his thumbs, cut off his toes, and they would make him a servant within their own realm. And he would be there to show off whenever a king wanted to throw parties and have his friends over. He would have this other king come out and and parade him in front. And it seems like perhaps that was what Saul had in mind. He wanted to bring him back as a trophy. He disobeyed. He brought back all the spoil, all the best of the spoil of the Amalekites. He didn't obey God in what he was doing. And again, even worse, he blame shifts and says, no, it's the people, the people that did that. Well, that doesn't cut it, does it? Uh, that's the same excuse that Adam tried to give in the garden when he said, no, God, I, I, I know that I ate of the fruit, but it was the woman. It was the woman that you gave me that made me eat of the fruit. Again, that's not a, a good call for either Adam to make or for Saul to make to try to pass blame like this um, is just sickening. Notice in verse 13, uh, which we already read, where we see the, the pronoun shift here, where it says that I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. He was willing to accept credit for what he did right. And then in verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them back from the Amalekites. So all the good Saul was willing to stand up and to take credit for, but all the bad he was willing to, to blame shift for. Proverbs 15 verse 8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's what he's saying here to, to Saul. Don't tell me that, that what you're doing is okay and then come try to offer sacrifices for me. Um, I told you to destroy the cattle. You're not you don't have the, the authority to, to call an audible and to say, oh, I'm just going to bring them back and offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord. God told him specifically what to do, and he was disobedient in what he did. And we see that uh, God is now holding Saul accountable. He's not turning to the people of Israel. He's turning to the leader of the people of Israel, to Saul, that they asked for, that he has put in charge over them, and he is holding him accountable. Uh, jumping way forward into the New Testament, we're reminded in Romans 13, verse 1. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And looking in the next chapter, verse, four, verse 10 of chapter 14, uh, Paul says here, But you, why... Do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue will give praise to God. Paul's, or Saul, rather, back in 1 Samuel, he's not able to, to blame shift, right? He's not able to Uh, divert the eyes of God from himself onto his people. God is going to hold him accountable for what he has done. God has placed him in authority over his people, and now the bill is due, and he's going to come to him and uh, punish him for his disobedience. And notice in verse 23, we see here that even the king is subject to God. God is one with absolute authority. God is one with absolute sovereignty. It says, for rebellion is in the is as the sin of divination. So he's calling them out. You have rebelled against me. It says, and insubordination. 
the king of Israel is subordinate to the king of kings. And God is reminding him of that. You have been insubordinate to the word of God. And he is now rejecting him as being king. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is in charge. God is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like streams of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. God does whatever he wants, even with those who are in authority. And he's coming back and he's telling Saul, no, you, you've been insubordinate to the true king, and now you are going to be displaced. You're going to be dethroned because of your act of obedience, because of your insubordination. God is the one who has given him his place and power of position and authority, and now he's taking it back from him. Remember when Jesus was about to be crucified, he stood before Pilate, and he was silent as a sheep before his shearers, and Pilate said, what are you doing? Why are you being so quiet? Don't you realize that I have the power to to set you free? I have the power to, to condemn you and to put you to death? And Jesus just bold as can be, says, you know what? You wouldn't even have any power. You wouldn't have any authority if I hadn't given it to you in the first place. You, you only have authority as king because God has put you in this place and, and position of power. You need to realize that God is the one who is in ultimate authority. And that's something that Saul should have taken note of and should have realized as well. Well, Saul goes on from here after being called out, after being told that his days of ruling are over, and he begins to beg Samuel. He begins to tell him in verse 24, he offers this other lame excuse. He says, I feared the people and I listened to their voice, which right off the bat is not the way that leadership is to be operating, right? Where he is blaming the people, saying, I feared the people. Uh, We've been going through we started going through Proverbs on Wednesday, and Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, Proverbs 29.25 says that uh, the fear of man is a snare, and Saul has gotten that twisted. He's gotten that backwards somehow. I want to read you this quote from John Flavel. He puts it very simply, very bluntly. He says, the carnal person fears man, not God. The strong Christian fears God, not man. The weak Christian fears man too much and God too little. And we see from this whole discourse that Saul was a weak man, that Saul wasn't uh, following after the Lord. He was rather following after men. And now he was paying the price. So he begs Samuel, forgive me, help me, come with me, uh, come and speak to the Lord on my behalf. And in verse 26, It says, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. He's desperate now, grabbing his robe and tearing it, wanting him to come with him. Verse 28, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Man, if that's not a burn, I don't know what is. He, not only have you lost the kingdom, but who you've lost it to, he's, he's better than you. Uh, from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 29. Also, this is amazing, the way that God describes himself here. He says, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God is 
the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful. And remember that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12? God is going to fulfill that promise. God will uh, bless his house. God will bless the nations through his house. But also remember what we looked at in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, that God will hold the people accountable if they are wayward, if they are disobedient. God will give them a disobedient king. And that's what he's doing here. He is going to uh, not change his mind. He is going to fulfill what he said he would fulfill. And at this point, the sun begins to go down on, on Saul's reign. He's losing grip of his power. He's losing control of the nation. And as I mentioned before, this is a, a pivotal point within Israel's history where David steps onto the scene. And this is a, an amazing chapter of history. It's not just a, a new chapter that we're getting to go into in 1 Samuel 16, but this is a new chapter within Israel's history. This is the greatest chapter of Israel's history where God shows more favor to his people than they've ever seen before, where God gives them more peace and prosperity and, and victory, where they are faithful and obedient in a way that they have never been throughout the history of, of Israel, throughout the history of God's people. They're going to experience unparalleled victory and uh, favor. These are truly the glory days of Israel, and they're all focused and centered around this man, David. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter 16 as we begin to look at this man, David, who seems to be at the center of it all. In chapter 16, verse 1, well, hold on, leading up to this, uh, Samuel had to go back and he had to finish the job that Saul wasn't willing to do. He went and he took care of Agag and killed Agag himself. And then uh, he was mourning and he was weeping because he realized the, the weight of uh, the, the statement that God had given to Saul that he wouldn't be leading Israel and that Israel was without a holy righteous leader that had God with him. So Samuel was mourning and grieving. Here in 16.1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And so Samuel goes and he finds Jesse, goes to offer sacrifice, and he uh, consecrates Jesse and his sons. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 16, he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. <clears throat> when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then, he calls forward Abinadab, and he calls forward uh, Shemaiah, different sons of Jesse. And in verse 10, it says, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And so Samuel's sitting there as Jesse is bringing out all of his sons and parading them before Jesse. And Samuel's saying, No, that, that's not it. No, he's not it. Yeah, he looks good on the outside, but that's not it. That's not the man that God has for himself. That's not the man that God has chosen. Yeah, they, they look impressive on the outside, but God isn't concerned with 
the outward appearance. Look again at, at verse 7. In fact, let's throw up that slide of 1 Samuel 10.7. You might see this over the next couple of months cycling through the announcements because this is a vital verse. This is an important verse, not just for the story of David, not just for First and Second Samuel, but for the way that God operates. It says again in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God doesn't need to be impressed, right? These men on the outside, they were impressive, but God doesn't need to be impressed. God doesn't need anything, does he? And I think we know that on an intellectual level. I think if we were to answer a question on a theology quiz, does, does God need anything? We would say, no, of course not, right? We would hopefully circle the no. However, I think in our mind, we, we get twisted on this sometimes. We get backwards and we think, oh man, what, what if God had this person? What if God had this man to speak on behalf? It uh, wasn't that long ago that everybody got all hyped up and excited about Tim Tebow. You remember that? This, this great athlete that he, he is a, a Christian, he says great things, and um, I enjoy listening to the man, but the mindset that was kind of circling around Christianity was, oh man, this, God is so lucky to have Tim Tebow on his team, isn't he? Uh, which is, again, kind of backwards thinking, but that's kind of how we get. Uh, again, wasn't that long ago that we saw that very cringy clip of Elon Musk before... Uh, well, who was that? The Babylon Bee reporters, right? And they had this great opportunity where it seemed like Elon was ready and willing to hear the gospel and they just kind of face-planted, right? And uh, didn't share with him the gospel and kind of the buzz around the Christian world was, oh man, that, that's a bummer because if Elon Musk was a Christian, imagine the great things that he could do for Christianity or Kanye West, right? Uh, look at, oh, maybe don't look at Kanye West now, right? Um, or uh, Andrew Peterson, or you know, what, what could God do if he had the heart of Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin? And we just get kind of stuck in our minds thinking that God somehow needs these great and powerful people, that these great speakers, these intellectual men would be able to do amazing things for God. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anybody. God is God. And he doesn't need those who are impressive, those who are powerful, those who are good looking, who are tall in stature, those men like Eliab or uh, Abinadab. God doesn't need anything. God is God alone. God doesn't need uh, David. Even though he's going to use David, he's going to work through David, God is not impressed by, by men and the things that men can offer him. Uh, we need to hold on to that. Remember that, that God doesn't need anyone. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. He has life within himself. He doesn't need us. He's not concerned about what we can do for him. He's not concerned, as we saw back in chapter 15, with burnt offerings. He's not even concerned for our obedience. He doesn't need our obedience. He demands our obedience because he is God, because he is king, because he is the one who is in absolute control and absolute authority. We need to remember that even as we look at David and how David is the man who is chosen of God. He's not really that impressive, at least not to begin with. In 1612, 
we get our, our first glimpse at David. David, who is left out in the cold to tend the sheep, now comes in and he's brought in after uh, Samuel realizes that Jesse forgot one of his kids. In verse 12, it says, So he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, which just means red, probably from being outside so much, with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, remember, he's not chosen because he has pretty eyes, which is, we all know, a necessary quality for a king, right? He's not chosen because he's handsome. Remember, his own dad forgot about him. And during this most important event that surely ever happened within the life of Jesse, where this great man, Samuel, was coming to the house, he forgot one of his kids and just left him outside. So he's not chosen because he's amazing, even though he does have some incredible qualities about himself. Um, Look down with me at verse 18. It says, Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, talking about David, who was a skillful musician, mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So yeah, he was a a skillful musician. In fact, he penned uh, nearly half of the Psalms. He was a mighty man of valor. We'll see shortly that he killed a a lion and a bear with his bare hands, right? Just grabbed the lion by the beard and uh, killed him uh, like he was nothing. He was strong. Uh, Later on, we see that Saul is trying to get after him and, and trying to scheme against David and told him, well, why don't you go off and you want to marry my daughter? You bring me back uh, 10 dead Philistines or 100 Philistines. And rather than going off and killing 100 Philistines, he went off and killed 200 Philistines, no problem. So he was strong without a doubt. He was, a, again, a, a great warrior. He was a great leader. Uh, he was articulate, a man of good judgment is what it says at the end of verse 18. Uh, one of prudent speech is how Nasby puts it. But he was chosen not for any of these outward exterior qualities. He was chosen because the Lord is with him, because he was a man after God's own heart. Even before God took the, the throne away from Saul, he told Saul and he warned him that not only is he going to give it to a, a man who's better than him, as we saw, but in verse 14 of chapter 13, it says... Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him a ruler over his people because you have not kept, the, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And remember at this point, David was just a child. He hadn't done anything that was king worthy at this point at all. He was chosen because God had chosen him. Because again, he was a man after God's own heart. And we'll continue to explore that over the, coming weeks, but just to kind of give us an introductory uh, glimpse into what that means that David was a man after God's own heart. I want to read for us Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72. This isn't one of David's psalms. This is a a masculine of Asaph, so it's not David patting himself on the back here. But Asaph says that he also chose David his servant. You get that? That's how he described David as a servant of God, not a man going out and building a statue for himself because he thinks he's great, patting himself on the back. No, this is David, his servant. And he took from the sheepfolds, which is a lowly place. David was taken up out of the sheepfolds. Uh, From the care of the ewes and suckling lambs. You see that David has a soft and tender heart there. 
he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, not with a, a heavy hand, but with a soft heart, and Israel, his inheritance. So David had this mindset that he was shepherding God's people, not his own people. David knew that these were God's men, not his own. And so he shepherded them, shepherded them accordingly to according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. David was a man of integrity. David was a man who understood that God was the one who was in charge and that he was just a servant of the Most High God. This isn't the mindset that Saul had. Saul's character was put on display by going out and again building a statue for himself and uh, by denying responsibility and trying to blame shift and put it on the people. That's not at all who David was. David was a, a humble man. David was a meek man. Not a, not a weak man by any means, but he was meek and humble. He didn't force himself to the throne. He acknowledged his sin when he messed up. We see that all throughout the Psalms. And he didn't consider himself to be worthy of the, the position that God had put him in. First Samuel 18, 23, he says, I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. That's what David thought of himself. In 2 Samuel 7, 18, this is after he became king. He says, who am I, Lord God, that you have brought me this far? David was a man of humility. David was a man after God's own heart. And we see in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, it says, sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. You think David learned something from his predecessor? That God wasn't concerned with offerings, right? He was concerned with obedience. He says, my ears you have opened. He's giving God the credit for opening up his ears for doing what he has done in him. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. This is a stark contrast between Saul and David. David who's looking to God saying, I desire your law. I desire to, to honor you. Uh, I, David is just night and day difference from Saul. And that humility is a, a beautiful attribute in David. It's something that uh, I'm sure, like me, you are drawn to. I really don't like, I think there are a few things that I like less than somebody who is incompetent, who tries to raise themselves up and pretend that they know what they're doing, right? If you've ever done any sort of on-the-job training, you've experienced this. Somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, they pretend like they know what they're doing. Um, and while I prefer somebody who is skilled in their labor, who knows what they're doing, I'm even put off by them if they are uh, braggadocious about it, right? If they have this pomp about them and, and they know that they do a good job. However, I am absolutely drawn to those people uh, who do their jobs well, who serve the Lord well, and they don't need to be constantly recognized for it, where they can serve the Lord with their left hand without letting their right hand know what they're doing. Those people who are humble, who serve the Lord with gladness and with joy without trying to pat themselves on the back for it. That is a beautiful quality, that humility that David possesses uh, in Micah 6, 6 through 8. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings? Shall I come before him with calves that are a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 10, rivers of oil? It says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
and then he answers his own question. None of these. God's not concerned with, with offering, with what you can give to him. No, he has shown you, O oh man, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is what God requires of, of all of us. And that is what David puts on display so beautifully, this humility of heart that he loved the Lord, he served the Lord, and he realized his position before the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart, a man full of humility. And even David was just a, a picture. He was just a shadow of the true picture of humility in Christ, who was the most humble of anyone. That There's no greater picture or illustration of humility than what Jesus did in taking on flesh. In Philippians 2, the quintessential passage on the humility of Christ, verses 5 through 8, we are told to have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Get that, in, in Christ Jesus, in God the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the great I am, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the quintessential picture of humility. That is the, the same heart that David had within himself, that he didn't want to elevate himself, he didn't want to exalt himself, he wanted to serve God and to do so humbly. And I want to close with this passage written by David in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Again, he, he learned, didn't he? You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God, we pray that you would give us broken hearts, that you would make us contrite and, and lowly. God, that you would give us a, an understanding of our position before you, that we wouldn't be proud, that we wouldn't be boastful or arrogant or haughty, that we wouldn't have any of that attitude amongst us, amongst this church, that we would be in complete submission to you, realizing that you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, you don't need anything from us. God, even our obedience is demanded, it's not needed. God, help us to obey you, help us to, to love you like David loved you, help us to, help us to be a, a light and to be distinct, to be set apart, that we would be men and women of, of righteousness who are known because of our, our love for each other, because of the love that you have that is reflected through us. God, help us to love you more and more each day and to be obedient men and women after God's own heart. We love you and praise you. Amen.